and welcome to Meet Me in the Biddle, the podcast that finds middle ground within the wellness industry, topics in the media, just like the world in general. My name is Jenny Omani. My name is Lee Freiling. And I'm Annika Buckle. As always, we so appreciate you listening and we extra appreciate when you turn that listening into reviews or sharing or ratings on your favorite podcast platform. They mean more to us than you probably know. So thank you. So today we are actually going to talk, well, the topic is beyond beef, beyond meat, the sort of the vegan meat alternative industry, I suppose, is a larger umbrella term. And this kind of stemmed from, in all honesty, when we get negative feedback because people don't hear what they want as the answer for things, we were like, you know, maybe we should really do like a devil's advocate component and really push the other side in terms of um, information uh, in order to achieve more middle balance. So what we've actually done today is uh, just that. Um, so we're going to chat about the meat alternative industry. Um, and we're actually going to talk about the meat industry. So we'll chat about both. And if you're vegan, you're welcome here. If you are a carnivore, you are welcome here. This is not no one. We're not telling anybody how they should be eating or what, you know, why or whatever, more just having a look at, um, the impacts on, um, really our world due to meat consumption and why, you know, we hear these two sides. We hear vegans say that the meat industry is horrific. It's cruel. Um, and it's very damaging to the environment. And then we hear the other side that says things like, I mean, really, it's not that bad. Humans have been eating animals forever. And, look at all those ingredients in meat alternatives. That shit can't be good for you. So let's dive in, Annika Buckle. <laughs> so let's talk about all those things. Um, we're going to kind of kick off with just a little bit of kind of context and history around meat, the meat alternative industry. Um, I've tried to come up with like a better way of saying it, but it's such an umbrella term. Um, and there's so many different phrases that people use for it. So we're just going to call it a bunch of different things over the course of the day. And thank you for riding along this bumpy journey with us. <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, of course, meat substitution has a long history. Tofu was invented in China as early as, you know, potentially 200 BCE and wheat gluten has been used, you know, even prior to that in the middle ages, chopped nuts and grapes were used as a substitute for mincemeat during mm. Lent. Yummy. Oh. That sounds great. I know, okay. right? Um, Dr. John Kellogg, who you may remember uh, as one of our favorite eugenicists from our Nourishing Traditions episode, <laughs> um, ran a very famous sanitarium in the late 1800s and created a meat alternative to serve there specifically. It was called Protease, and it was made of peanut butter, mashed beans, water, cornstarch, onion, sage, and a little bit of salt. It's kind of credited as being one of the first big meat alternatives in North America. Um, and side note, fun fact, Dr. Kellogg was a Seventh-day Adventist, and mm. Because all of his food innovations, including cornflakes, cornflakes, and this idea of breakfast cereals, were because he believed that a diet centered around bland foods would lead Americans away from sin. Mm -hmm. Oh, so is he making meat alternatives because meat isn't bland? The Seventh Day Adventist diet generally promotes bland food, believing people should not eat meat and saturated oh, fat, as it can lead you to succumb to impure desires. Right, mm. like. 
but it's peanuts kind of- are peanuts are low in fat. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Something about that, like very animalistic. I mean, if you've ever like picked up a you know a chicken wing or a turkey leg to eat by the bone, right? It's like, like at Disneyland, the big yeah, turkey legs. How can that not be evil? <laughs> um, so I think this is kind of also where we get this like virtuous feeling piece um mm. sometimes right like mm-hmm. meat, right i love the um, virtualization of mm. food it's like my favorite oh. thing right right oh um. the sarcasm in my <laughs> voice right now so as we kind of move into the later 1900s of course like this stereotype of the kind of crunchy west coast i totally remember um when i was growing up we lived part of the year in san diego for a few years in the 90s i stopped eating meat and i was able to order a garden burger before they were kind of like widely available or i mean maybe it was just like living in a you know small canadian town of 2000 people the rest of the year that didn't give us access to things like garden burgers but um when we kind of look at this like long arc of history mostly you know until the more recent history we see people eating meat alternatives for religious reasons not for health reasons and certainly not for climate reasons mm-hmm. buddhism hinduism branches of christianity orthodox judaism you know, all this promotion of kind of vegetarianism and veganism for religious reasons. I think, again, this comes back to that, you know, concept of like, there's something pure and not eating meat. There's something virtuous about being a vegetarian. Um, But it also feels like a good place to highlight that throughout history, some of those gaps of how much meat people eat is purely because of access. It's Mm -hmm. cost, right? Meat is Mm -hmm. expensive. Meat has always been expensive. Meat is hard to get. Meat has always been harder to get, um, at least until the, you know, fairly recent history. So Victorian England is a really uh, interesting example that I um, read about in a few places. Uh, Vegetarianism kind of came along with the temperance movement. So you have this temperance movement coming from the upper class who in a lot of places is pushing for an end to eating meat for moral reasons not ethical reasons moral reasons but they're pushing it against this lower class who already is eating very little meat simply because they can't afford it (laughs) well it's like they all had like deep freezes and they could go stock up buy in bulk well and it's just so out of touch right like a lot of what we see right now in the diet and wellness industry specifically this like you know pushing your privilege that's actually mm. completely out of touch with what people actually need or are really experiencing in their lives. Yeah, totally. Oh, geez. That's so funny. I can totally see like rich <laughs> aristocratic men who after their husbands are back from the hunt and they've killed like hundreds and hundreds of grouse mm-hmm. are like, no, no one should eat meat. <laughs> right. Barely every and Give that to the dogs. Yeah, eating, to the dogs. Yeah. Eating meat is impure. Yeah. Where you know her her washerwoman is like, "Are you joking? I've never seen. I haven't seen a piece of meat in ten years." <laughs> we well, eat potatoes. And this is just to me. I just think that like uh, puritanical thought just really creeps in in all the cracks, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. This idea that we would be better humans somehow if we just X Y Z didn't do any of the things that are delicious or give us joy just <laughs> and it's always prefaced with if we just if we just sound easy yeah. and it's simply a choice yeah it's simply a choice if you could just really get your shit together and just <laughs> decide to be above your own 
taste buds, desires, or wanting to ever feel really, truly full, you know, it's, uh, it's fine. It's fine. Anyways, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but truthfully, I mean, when we're talking about the moralization of food, it's always like my eyes cannot roll (laughs) big enough in my head whenever I hear this shit, because why everyone? Why? Sorry. Go on. No, it's perfect. It's, it's very relevant. I think it's, I've always found it quite hard to talk about, you know, kind of puritanical thinking without getting a little eye rolly. So um, let's talk specifically about the evolution and the growth of the plant-based meat industry specifically. So the big two impossible burger and beyond meat were founded in the very early kind of 2010s. Interesting, both companies were kind of created out of the desire for their respective founders to combat climate change. And this is a huge part of this story. This is why this is what we're talking about today. You know, there are a lot of articles, of course, that want to put these two companies head to head, which I think is interesting and so symptomatic of our constant push for polarization, you know, taking sides for this, for the not that. But in our push for middle ground, I'm not going to do a side by side. But I will say the kind of Two big differences between these from a company standpoint is financing, although so much of the story here is just how much money there is within all of this industry at large. Beyond Meat went public with an IPO in May 2019, and on the day of its IPO, the company was valued at $3.8 billion, which was the best performing public offering by a major U.S. company in almost 20 years, so since 2000. Wow. Wow. Okay. Pretty big deal. I think this is part of the reason too that it kind of became so ubiquitous in the zeitgeist is like it's it becomes a darling. It becomes a you know industry success story. Mm-hmm. Um, Impossible Foods is privately owned and has you know big name business financing. Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Um, so we That's could take interesting that actually down a rabbit okay. hole. Yeah. Um, and initially they said they they were going to go public in 2021 or 2022 after seeing the success of Beyond Meat. Um, But what's really interesting is the drop we've seen in the market for plant-based meat over the last two years, particularly Hmm. in 2022. Hmm. The plant-based global meat market was valued at 5.3 billion in 2021 and 5.8 billion in 2022. So even though that's a little bit more, when you look at the increase of the meat, um, global meat market, from 840 billion in 2020 to a trillion dollars in 2022. Oh, wow. That's a very small piece, almost so small as to be a decrease, right? It's Hmm. a smaller part of the larger whole. Um, There are a few theories about why this is one being consumers cutting back on what they think of as luxuries Mm -hmm. when when it comes to inflation Um, and the other being increased concern about the ingredients not being healthy, but Mm -hmm. we'll do a little bit of a deep dive into the ingredients in a little bit. Um, Jenny, let's talk about the, the climate aspect of, of this. Yeah. I was like, I was really disappointed when I looked at this, (laughs) like really, really tried really hard to find some good sources that countered a lot of this and there really aren't any like i'm super pumped right now to be honest um i really sometimes we seek out middle meat. ground and it's like well damn it there isn't really <laughs> maybe there isn't as much middle ground in this as we'd want and that's okay well, that's what there, this conversation i is mean in. there's always middle ground but the the it's pretty staggering the impact of meat as an industry um 
in general on the climate. Um, so there's really three main categories of impact from the meat industry that it can be very generally lumped into. So there's waste products, resources, primarily being water and land. So if we start with waste products, I think this is probably the one that people tend to think of the most in terms of greenhouse gases, but it's not just greenhouse gases. It's also particulate matter. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Ooh. Yeah, that was a new one to me. I just got more disappointed the more I looked at this. <laughs> Fucking love a good steak. Anyways, and I don't need to stop loving a good steak, but I, anyways, okay. Um, now you have feelings about the steak that you do. But I've, now I've thought before. about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're, we're going to prescribe some uh, Instagram animal videos to you when we're done this episode, I mm. think, Jenny. <laughs> I actually prefer Pinterest's algorithm. So I would, I, I, yeah, exactly. I'm going to go look at like English countryside gardens when I'm done this. Um, so the impacts of animal agriculture vary a lot in terms of percentages. So like you'll see there's some, the clickbait numbers you see is like 60% of greenhouse gases come from the meat right. industry. So it's really easy to see how hard it is to actually get those numbers when you look at how diverse agricultural practices are across the world. Um, so it's almost impossible to actually get a true accurate number when there's so many different countries, there's so many different ways of, of farming, um, you really can't narrow it down. So I found a whole shit ton of percentages and essentially the consensus lies between 18 and 60% of greenhouse gases are from the meat industry. <laughs> but having said that, even 18% is a is pretty a good chunk, yeah. right? So like, even if we go to that lowest number and we say 18% of greenhouse gases are from the meat industry, like that's one industry and that's a very large percentage. Right. Yeah. So I just think, and for comparison, the industrial industry is 13% ish. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're looking at more than cars, more than like more than driving, more than travel, more than like manufacturing, manufacturing. Yeah. It's a significant number. Um, so the major majority of the greenhouse gases come from methane. Can anybody pop quiz? What is the main producer of methane in the meat Farts. industry? Farts. Close. It's burps. How did you know that? Because I live I in the country, really dude. Excited. I was I have, really excited I up, about that data I grew point. up beside a cow field. I know the things about the cows. I know what they're doing. I watched well, them my whole childhood. Apparently, they're burping and farting. They're burping. Yep. So they digest their food by enteric fermentation. Mm -hmm. And so their burps are the main methane source of methane emission. That's so fascinating. Um, also, of course, um, uh, land use in terms of like machinery, um, nitrous oxide from manure, um, methane also from waste products. So th the, this is a contributing, big contributing component as well. Um, particulate matter. This is a new one to me. So meat production is the leading cause of harmful particulate matter pollution in the atmosphere. Um, so we're looking at enzotoxins, hydrogen sulfide, like end products, ammonia, um, and dust, like the amount of dust that gets mm. kicked up from all the animals, um, has a huge, um, impact on the atmosphere. Isn't that bananas that mm. like the freaking dust that the cows are walking through is that much of a contributor to atmospheric dust? Well, I will say again, tell us about your girl, neighbors as the girl who lives in the country, <laughs> the dust is a whole thing. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if the dust, I mean, there's a, a couple of cow sort of like 
they're not CAFOs, but there's a couple of like fields where there are many cows in them often. Yeah. And you can definitely see when they walk, like when they're like on the move and it hasn't rained they're recently, heavy. there's a yeah. lot of kick up for sure. Yeah, for sure. They're, yeah. And they're heavy, right? Do, do, do. Yep. They're big, heavy animals. That noise yep. was them walking. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Sounds um, correct. That is the sound <laughs> they make when they walk. Uh, and also lumped in here with um, waste products is there's there's a large a lot a uh, large amount of contaminated water that they use um, in terms of with cleaning chemicals from cleaning um, the areas that the animals are in waste products raw materials including like bones legs packing materials hair skin um, <laughs> yeah like all sorts of gross things um, and from cleaning the machines cleaning out the carcasses and that all has to be distributed somewhere right blood mm-hmm. manure fat um, like the stomach contents from the animals when they're slaughtered right? right that's a huge amount of waste um and so they use water to um help flush all that away and you end up with these giant like reservoirs of literally water filled with animal waste and like waste from these farms i guess is the term <laughs> production plants Um, and these are, this is a pretty, this is, it's pretty staggering the amount of waste that comes in general from the industry. Now, in terms of resources, um, you're looking at water primarily, but you also have to feed them, right? So seven pounds of animal feed, um, is the approximately what it takes to make one pound of beef. So Mm. that's a lot, like, I mean, seven pounds to get one pound. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a negative integer, um, three pounds to get a pound of pork, two pounds to get a pound of chicken. And of course the numbers vary depending on like the, the quality of the feed. If you use grain versus, um, human inedible, like roughage, uh, versus right. whatever, like you're gonna. Well, and, shift and those, those then have more nuance too, right? It's of like, course, if you're yeah. feeding animals food that could literally go to feeding people, when we're yeah. looking at how we feed a, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 billion people that this planet will eventually have. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no. So, so I mean, grain gr- of salt for all of these numbers, but at the end of the day, you have to feed the animal more than you get. Than you get. Yeah. 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 Um, around eighty to ninety percent of U.S. water consumption is dedicated to agriculture production. Um, for animals, that's water they Not need. Water. Eighty to ninety percent. That's a lot. It's oh no. Oh yeah, yeah. It's huge. Wow. I mean, some numbers said two thirds. So sure, if you want to say two thirds, 80 to 90%, either way, you're looking at well over half Mm -hmm. of the water consumption in the States is going towards um, agriculture production. So for animals, and that's in general for agriculture production, not just the meat industry. So that's an important clarification point. But for animals, you have to give them water. You also have to water the crops for them to, to grow crops for them to eat. Mm-hmm. There are some areas that utilize just rainwater to grow their crops. So those um, areas aren't included in these numbers, but they're obviously a small percentage. If you look at the gargantuan mm-hmm. um, numbers that are being you know, used here. Um, and then they also use a lot of water, like we said, to clean, um, process, um, and deal with waste products. Because and ninety nine percent of meat production does happen on factory farms. I don't think that's surprising that like the the market for small farmers is is small. Most of this is happening at a large scale through large scale mm-hmm. facilities. Right. Um, and then last up, we talk. It's land. So 
a lot of the land goes to grazing. So you're um, 26%-ish of the Earth's free ice terrestrial surface um, is used for either animal feed or animal grazing. So 26% of the Earth, like essentially 26% of the planet that could grow things is being used for either grazing animals or for agriculture for mm-hmm. animals to make things for animals to eat. Right. Um, I feel like this is one of those numbers you also have to be like, well, that's a pretty hard number to get. But even yeah. if you like cut it in half, that's still a large number. That's still a lot. Yeah. Right. Um, in lots of countries, livestock do graze on land, which mostly can't be used for growing things for humans, but you're looking at not Westernized countries. You're looking at like, um, I don't know, like Peru, Bolivia, like you're looking at countries where, um, you have sort of nomadic people who are savvy, smart farmers, and they do have animals on sort of, um, these steeper slopes, I mean, as steep as a cow can go, let's be honest. I don't really think cows are known for their climbing skills. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Goats, perhaps. But you, you you are using land that would not be usable for other Otherwise. reasons necessarily. But we're looking at a smaller percentage of countries who do that. Um, And actually, one of the biggest causes of deforestation is producing land for beef production, production for grazing. Um, right. So the livestock sector is the primary driver of deforestation in the Amazon. So 80% of all deforested land is used in the Amazon has been used for cattle farming. Hmm. And in That's general, since painful. 1970, 91% of all deforested land um, internationally, once again, how do we get that number? I feel like we can't say 91% exactly. Seems very specific. <laughs> it's a very specific number for the world. Um, but cut it in half even, whatever. Additionally. of deforested land since 1970 has been used for cattle farming. So even if you say that's 40%, that's still a lot. Outrageously high number. So essentially in terms of the amount of effort that goes into uh, feeding animals in order to slaughter animals is astronomical. The waste products they produce are by far worse than any other industry. And the amount of land they are using um, is growing rapidly and it's, uh, contributing to deforestation. It's having huge impacts in terms of microclimates, um, that you don't see elsewhere, right? Like if you look at, if you watch any national geographic on the Amazon rainforest, they will tell you that, that, that the wildlife there just can't, it's not, you can't replicate it in Canada. You can't rep like it's its own climate. And when it's gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I'm really bummed about all this. Mm-hmm. Make me feel better. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the kind of flip side argument, which is, you know, kind of what we touched on earlier, you know, the ingredients in these, you know, vegetarian meat alternatives are not good for you. So straight off the hop, I'm just going to read and I will put this in the show notes too, if you're like me and saying it out loud is just going to be in one ear and not the other. You need to look at it. But here is the full Beyond Burger ingredient list. Water, pea protein, expeller pressed canola oil, refined coconut oil, rice protein, natural flavors, cocoa butter, mung bean protein, methyl cellulose, potato starch, apple extract, pomegranate extract, salt, potassium chloride, vinegar, lemon juice concentrate, sunflower lecithin, beet juice extract, 
the beet juice extract is so that it looks a little bit bloody. <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Um, but it, it's gonna it'll get a little grosser when we talk about the uh, Impossible Burger. So here's the beyond. Here's the Impossible Burger. I was just gonna say that list. none of those are bad unless you're afraid of canola oil. I mean, right. So do you know what I mean? Like, just as somebody listening, like, unless I am like one of those people that's like very anti vegetable oils, this is fine. The Weston A price price crowd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the impossible burger is soy protein concentrate, coconut oil, sunflower oil, potato protein, methyl cellulose, yeast extract, salt, gums, water, and additives, including vitamin B12, zinc, vitamin B6, thiamine, and niacin. Note of note in this, first of all, soy. So, you know, that's a conversation um, for people who are concerned about soy. But also note, I found this very interesting. There are no vegetables in the Impossible Burger. Huh. Right. Have you ever tasted an Impossible Burger? I've definitely had the Beyond Burgers. And they're fine. Like the Beyond Burger is good. But if you, but as a meat eater, I wouldn't pick one because it's not as tasty as a beef burger. But I haven't tried an Impossible Burger, so I just don't. Know. I don't think I have either. This is one of the things I find very interesting in this. Um, is I in a lot of ways it almost feels like, you know, yes, I have some vegetarian and vegan friends who eat these more often. My vegetarian and vegan friends eat like a garden burger or tofu or you know those alternatives, yeah, tempeh, um, something like that. Right. Where, yeah. you know, I think the target market for this is like the flexitarian, the somebody who's looking to cut back on meat from their diet. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the people like me after reading all this right. and are deeply, <laughs> deeply disappointed. Who still want to feel like they're having a burger, but without mm-hmm. kind of all of those pieces of having the burger. Um, what it, What I did find really interesting as well, when we look at kind of like some of the markers um, like say like calories, fat, um, sugars, protein, oh, yeah. protein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So beyond burger, 20 <laughs> Forgot grams about of- that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, beyond burger, 20 grams of protein, impossible, 19 grams of protein, beef, 19 grams of protein. So this is all in four ounces. So this is well, that all makes like, sense. Cause like soy terrible. and the beans and whatnot, like that's mm-hmm. all the legumes that's high protein stuff. Calories are pretty comparable if you believe in calories. Um, <laughs> 270 in a beyond, 240 in impossible, and 287 in beef. So I think this is the other piece, right? That, you know, the argument is, you know, if it's not really, it's got the same amount of protein, it's got, you know, roughly the same amount of calories. Uh, saturated fat is not, I think that was kind of like people felt like, oh, this is healthier. This is going to have, you know, it's going to have less fat. It actually doesn't. No, it so they both have coconut burger, oil. <laughs> yeah. 20 <laughs> grams of fat in a Beyond Burger, six yeah, of which is saturated. Yeah. Um, beef, as comparison, has 23 grams, nine of which is saturated. Um, the Impossible Burger is a little less, 14 grams, but eight grams of that is saturated. So, I mean, again, yeah. it's all a little bit like one for one for one. Um, but I think what comes up again and again, most nutritional analyses of these, you know, meat alternatives describe this as an ultra processed food. If you've heard our processed food episode, you know, you'll understand that distinction. 
They're not the corn, rice, black bean guard burgers, right? But they're also not supposed to be. The Impossible Burger has a heme, hem, heme. How do you say it, Jenny? Heme? Oh, heme? Heme. H-E-M-E? Yes. Heme? Like heme? Yeah, yeah, heme. Yeah. The Impossible Burger has heme added to it to make it actually look like it's bleeding. And to give it 28% of your daily recommended iron intake, actually, also. They are you know, designed to look, feel, and taste like meat. More like meat than, you know, a garden burger or a piece of tofu. I don't really think they taste like meat. I don't think they taste bad. I enjoy them. I'm not disappointed if I have a Beyond Burger, but no part of me is like this. I can't believe this isn't beef. (laughs) Yeah. I just don't have that experience. Yeah, same. And I mean, to your original point there, Annika, I think really this just speaks to They really are trying to entice the person who like loves a beef burger, but who's trying to like maybe eat a little bit less beef, but who's like, but what else on earth would I ever eat except my (laughs) beef burger? And then they're creating a beef like ish alternative that helps them feel like they're a part of the quote unquote solution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, not everybody wants to eat a garden burger. Not everybody wants to eat a tofu burger or a mushroom cap. No, and you know what? Dave is a perfect example of this. Dave will eat a Beyond. He's had Beyond Burgers and he's like, yeah, it's fine. He just, if you gave him a choice, he would take the beef burger. But if you said like, hey, here's this garden burger, he'd be like, I'm not eating that. (laughs) Like no part of me wants chunks of vegetables in my, like he's not, like he just wouldn't. So I definitely, I mean, it's, it's really very ingenious marketing is what it Mm -hmm. is. It's -hmm. fantastic marketing. It sounds like at the core these were environmental sort of lobbyist types that created yeah, one, it. One one is a scientist um and it's funny actually cuz when I clicked on his wikipedia page to just kind of like get an overview of him I was like this has got to be the wrong whatever his name is this has got to be the wrong guy this can't this is all about like how he like became a doctor and then he was like one of the top research scientists in the US and then he took a sabbatical and oh on the sabbatical he started to look at how he could be most impactful in the world and he started to look at climate change and then he created this oh okay yeah no this is the right guy okay oh I actually like (laughs) that I like non-extremists creating things (laughs) how refreshing (laughs) well and I you know again I think kind of to you know, the points that you are making, Jenny, around the reality of what, you know, meat production is doing to the planet. I think where there are alternatives that are feasible for people, you know, it's really hard because there's so much we just don't know and understand about nutrition. Like there just isn't. We Mm -hmm. just really don't know that much. We can say meatless burgers are a good source of protein, vitamins, minerals, you know, they're maybe not great for saturated fat or calories if you care about that from a health perspective, but I mean, neither is beef. So you're actually probably better eating ground, a ground turkey burger or an old school garden burger. If you're truly concerned about, you know, those pieces and, and but none of those ingredients were bad, to be honest, like, unless you are on the high horse of vegetable oil is like straight from Satan. It's like I mean, none of those, it, there's nothing really horrible in there. And the I, fact that it can be fortified with vitamins, like that's like, I don't know. I have no issue with artificial fortification. So, and I think that's, this is where it becomes, you know, what are your, what are your own personal beliefs and opinions yeah. around soy, around sunflower oil? The other pieces, you know, a lot of this is very, like you can't make the potato protein that they use 
in your kitchen, right? This is like an industrial, like for sure. You can't make the, you know, you can't make your own beyond burger at home. Yeah. Right. No, And you can't make it out of ingredients that you could buy at the grocery store. Right. So no, but if that's the issue for you, this is where the ultra processed piece comes in. Right. So it, it becomes what is your, what, what are, what personal beliefs do you hold around that? How mm-hmm. serious do you take climate change? And like, do you like it? <laughs> yeah. I think it's such an interesting, cause there's so many different reasons that people like to, um, like evangelicalize their food choices. And you see some people who are vegan, who are, um, and we've talked about this, um, in what the health, right? Where some people are vegan and it's, it's literally the lifestyle. They do not believe in harming animals. They Mm -hmm. really deeply care about climate change. And they see that this is a way that they can, um, you know, do good in that area. And those people are, are often, um, they're quite happy to eat things like beyond meat and and whatnot. Like they're happy to, to do that because they didn't stop eating meat because they didn't like the taste of meat. They stopped eating meat for other reasons. Mm -hmm. If you are like a dietary purist, then you're probably not going to be, you're not going to touch beyond meat with a 10 foot pole. You're going to go ahead and, you know, make yourself a garden burger patty. You're going to go do that. What I do think is really interesting and important though, is there is a real misconception about protein intake and how much protein humans need and that it really has to come from meat. Like that's definitely, um, something that you can very, you can undisputably eat a very balanced diet as a vegan, but you really need to put effort into that. Mm -hmm. You have to take care about what you're eating. Um, And like you said, it's all about choice. So like, if I look at me who used to do a quarter of a cow from a local farmer every year in our deep freeze, the only reason we stopped this last year was cost because paying, you know, $800 in cash just was not something we could do last year. Um, and now we have looked, um, and like Dave's from South Africa and his lineage is Irish potatoes and meat are life for Dave. So we've sort of looked at like, what can we do ourselves? And that's what the one thing we keep, the one part that we both recognize is actually something that could be um, good for the environment is to limit our, or eat less meat, but we're also both not prepared to go to the effort of eating less meat. And that's tricky because it does the transition period. I'm sure once you're in a routine of it, Mm -hmm. it's no big deal, but like, it's really easy for me to just like make something with meat for dinner and my kids are going to eat it and I'm going to eat it and Dave's going to eat it and we're all going to be happy. And there's bandwidth that goes into that transition. And mm-hmm. my kids, we would all be fine. Honestly, if I just like put my head down and we figured it out and spent like a month where people weren't super happy with what they're eating while we figured it out. Fine. Do I have the bandwidth to spend a month with three kids not being super happy about what they're eating? Uh, I don't think I do today. No, not today. Not today. Yeah, I think, I think the thing for me that, uh, because I'm with you, Jenny, like we are a family who also will just buy a quarter cow. I have a quarter cow in my freezer right now. Um, and it actually takes some effort for me to think about the things to make with meat. Actually, I'm a little bit on the other side of the coin. So right now I would say on average, we have about two meat focused dinners a week. And the rest of it is like a tofu or a beans or eggs or a vegetarian, something, something, whatever other thing. Um, I've also become very, um, 
mindful of how much protein protein I'm eating during the day, um, just as like a middle-aged lady and becoming mm-hmm. a little bit more aware of like, in terms of feeling better and feeling um, more satiated throughout the day with the meals that I do eat, just having a little bit more focus on protein. Um, and I will, I will say that, you know, for me, when I look at like an impossible burger or a beyond burger or a thing of tofu or a thing of tempeh, um, because I'm someone who has the privilege of living in the country where there's lots of, lots of fruit and vegetables and food and farms and whatever I could like go down the street and like get like a freezer packed thing of, you know, grass fed local blue, blah, blue, blah, blue, whatever, all that stuff guy. Um, it, uh, I still have a little bit of like, a is this better for the environment? Because this thing got flown all the way around the world, had to have a whole big thing built up for it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because I have the, I have lived in this space of like reducing my environmental impact by endeavoring to buy a quarter cow from a local farmer. That's like a, within a hundred kilometers, well, probably more like 200 kilometers of where I live because of where the ranch land is, but still 200 kilometers in the grand scheme of food delivery no, is not nothing. Right. Um, and I appreciate that I'm like a real minority when it comes to that, right? The crux of this whole conversation for me has always been, is it actually better? Is this actually better for the environment to go and get these non-meat focused proteins? Cause really that's just what it is. It's non-meat focused proteins mm-hmm. to put into mm-hmm. my meals mm-hmm. that the ingredients literally came from all around the world on planes, on trains, on automobiles, had to go to a factory, had to get packaged up in plastic and then get put back into something and shipped to another place where it sat on a, do you know what I mean? I'm not criticizing these things because like, it's all fine. If you love the shit, great. Good for you. Right. Like I'm happy if someone like makes it for me, I'm happy to eat it. Like I'm happy to eat it. I also really like cooking. So that's another area where that's a big difference for me. Right. Like I can look at like a recipe with like three kinds of beans with like homemade hummus and like something, something, other thing, something. And I'm like, Ooh, I can make that. That's great. Right. I also appreciate that that's like not the reality for a lot of people. So yeah. That has always been a kind of my thing within my sort of particular view. I'm not worried about the ingredients. I'm more worried about the resources that it took to gather and create said ingredients to get them into said thing that then is wrapped in said plastic, which then turns into a something, something that then turns into something that lives in my fridge. Do you know what I mean? That's I mean, kind of the piece for me. So I will say the, as there's a, was a big study out of the university of Michigan comparing, this was specifically the beyond burger versus a quarter pound of beef mm-hmm. um, and found that even inclusive of, you know, end product shipping to store beyond burger generates 90% less greenhouse gas emissions requires 46% less energy and has 99 less impact on water scarcity and 93 less impact on land use. So right. yes, it still is better. Yeah. Yeah. Which and that's that's great to hear because like yeah. no one ever leads with that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well and I will also I just want to add um because I think that it is relevant if we're talking about people who are choosing, you know, any sort of meat alternative for ethical reasons. Um the impossible burger did have a little bit of a snafu where um PETA of course came out did. and said they wouldn't support them because they test on animals. Oh stop it. They yeah, they tested on rats. So not um 
great. I mean, lots for their of things luck. are tested on animals for sure. But again, like it's not, just kind of funny that the vegan it's, thing it's not the, the right industry for animal testing, right? It is um, not leaping bunny certified. Right, right. So oh, I, I think kind of Lee, that goes along with your point, right? Is like how much is going on, you know, beyond what we see behind the scenes that that mm-hmm. isn't that isn't visible, you know, with our grocery store purchases. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, even with every study, you have to look at like you'd have to really look at the sort of methodology behind how that study was, was conducted just to make sure that it's actually comparing mm-hmm. apples with apples. Right. And not to say, I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying, no, no, yeah. but that's always it, good. Like, that's always it's kind of, almost yeah. always more complicated than me. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other piece about this too, is that while I appreciate that a lot of meat production is not coming from small scale farmers. Um, I know small scale farmers mm-hmm. who are, who, who are like doing, doing their thing. And, you know, in the same capacity that like, I could find a study that kale is the w- world's greatest f- vegetable and I should eat it 25 times a day. And then I can find another study that tells me that kale is going to kill me. Right. There yeah. is there from the people that I've talked to, they talk about how if, uh, animal husbandry and farming and all this kind of stuff is done in a way that it actually works in alignment with the land, right? So kind of the Joel Salatins of the world um, or people who are actually using um, cattle farming as a way to regenerate some of the grasslands across like America as a way of sort of rebuilding the soil, right? Due to like, you know, manure and the things they eat and the stuff that gets attracted and all that kind of stuff you know, it's hard because I think it becomes a case of there is a way that people raised animals for millennia all around the world that did not destroy everything. Okay. Um, Are we necessarily doing that now? No, we're not. There are people who are. And I think it's important to speak to that and also speak to, is that possible to scale? No. And I think that's just it, right? I mean, this was more possible when we had one billion less people on the planet. Well, that's the thing. It's been less possible when we have another billion, you know. And that's the biggest concern is the projections, the numbers projection. And that's why essentially- If you yes. pull all the 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 non scary things out, the recommendations are pretty um, pretty basic, and they're pretty uh, doable for somebody with average means and privilege. And there are more. There are affordable. I think it would definitely depend on where you live and your access, but there are very affordable um, meat free protein options. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you dry, get dried beans versus canned beans, like they're actually quite affordable and in a lot of ways cheaper than meat. Um, but they take time, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we do always need to balance that. It's not just access involves, you know, funds, but also time. Yeah. Um, so, but the, the general recommendations are if you can eat less meat, that's a good thing to do. Um, and, 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 and with the, if being the important part, cause not everybody is in a position to do that, but if you are in a position to do that and you feel, um, you know, aligned with doing that, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. So we like, for example, so I meal plan every week and I do all of the cooking and I like it. So that's my original caveat right there. Right. Um, groceries in Canada, as we have discussed, have skyrocketed in mm-hmm. price over the last 
whatever, two years. Okay. And so I have a general ballpark figure that I try and hit with my weekly grocery order based off of what I'm planning. Right now we have all this beef in my freezer, but I don't have a million skinless, boneless chicken thighs, for example, which is something that as a family, we quite enjoy. So, you know, when I have looked at how is it that I can ensure that my two growing teenagers and my husband who with his current level of activity actually needs to eat about 3000 calories a day. Oh yeah. The farmer's breakfast was literally made for him. Literally made for Mr. (laughs) I never sit down. Right. Um, and then also me who's trying to become more mindful of just how much protein I should eat right? The protein aspect of the meal planning is really critical because protein is one of the most expensive aspects of cooking. Okay. Mm -hmm. Totally. And so, you know, for me, it has looked a lot like incorporating these, you know, vegetable based, um, proteins in more of our meals than not. Right. So on average, we have two, maybe three meat focused meals during a week. And the rest of it is like exactly that, like beans or something or something or something. Canned beans are like a dollar 79 for what you need for your family for the meal, right? So that is way less than if you're buying meat at the grocery store. Again, I like cooking and I like creating this kind of stuff. So if I was someone who wasn't like that, and I also maybe had like a really picky eater who would only eat chicken nuggets out of the freezer, then that's what's going to serve them, right? I'm with the idea that, you know, we should be eating less meat um, from an environmental perspective and also from the perspective of like, generally, we should just be eating as much vegetables as we possibly can from like a sort of quote health perspective. Um, But I also just really recognize that like for a lot of people that inaccessibility is a very real thing. You know, if I'm somebody who's like a single guy and the only thing that that makes me sort of like feel good at the end of the day is like a burger and fries, then you know, who am I to be like, bro, you should learn how to cook with beans. It's a good idea. You know, like burger, make your own garden burger. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and maybe that, maybe this guy, this one exact guy is the person for whom the impossible burger or the beyond burger at A&W is exactly targeted towards instead of having a burger five times a week, he has one that's the vegetarian version one. And then great. That's like his little drop in the bucket. I don't know. I think, I think it's a tricky thing because I mean, as always, when we're talking about food, you are having to consider so many variables, so many. It's also a polarizing topic, which is tricky. Quite. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Quite. Yeah. I mean, we have friends who are like raging vegans and they're very happy buying beyond and impossible burgers and serving them up on the barbecue in the summertime. It makes them really happy. Great. Yeah. man. When we go to their house, that's what they serve us. Great. Happy times. I'm happy to eat it. You know, I'm not angry about it, but I'm also just like, maybe not angry about food. Yeah. Food doesn't make <laughs> you angry. No, food makes me happy. I'm Unless like, it's puritanical. Food. Yeah. <laughs> except don't moralize this shit. Like, come on. Well, yeah. Sometimes the, the only thing that's going to fill the cheeseburger shaped hole in your heart is a cheeseburger. Thanks so much for listening to email. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.